Hi, welcome to a podcast for two people. My name's Carol. And my name's Julia. And today we are talking about It, Chapter 1 and 2. And as always, we are not taking constructive criticism at this time. Never. that I was going to have a glass of wine and kind of loosen up um, my podcast. Uh, we, oh, we don't have wine. No, we don't have wine. And it's because I drank it all while we watched it too. And I'm still recovering from that. So, <laughs> You wanted to talk first about the movies as a whole and just kind of general impressions. And I had seen it before you. And so I think you having seen it most recently probably have it like your first impressions most fresh in your mind. So if you want to talk about that. Okay, so my first impression was I am not a big horror gore fan. I can't handle a lot of super, super gory content. So I watched it under the condition that Julia would tell me when I had to close my eyes. So I didn't need to see. Hey guys, this is Future Carol checking in from editing to let you all know that this is not a spoiler free podcast. If you don't want to be spoiled for It Chapters 1 and 2, pause here and go watch the movies now. Okay, all set, let's go. So I didn't need to see Georgie's arm getting ripped off. I really liked the first film. Just some background, and I don't know if I can say this without sounding like a hole, but I studied film in college. Right. So. <laughs> I'm a big fan of that like 1980s nostalgia. I think our generation has a lot of nostalgia for the 80s for a group of people who never grew up in the 80s. Right. I agree. This is actually something that I wrote down to talk about. I love nostalgia as a framing device just in general. And I think that culturally, there isn't really a bigger trend than nostalgia right now. And almost always, there's just a never ending cycle of nostalgia for different eras. And we've kind of hit right where the 80s is or are right where the 80s are. And it's a little bit of a way of anchoring things in a better time, but also getting to cherry pick an era for the good stuff, like the aesthetics and the kids riding bikes and none of the awful, like the racism and the misogyny and the homophobia. And I think it's interesting also rooting this story, particularly in the 80s, because there's not so much nostalgia for um, the time period, more or less. I mean, like the outfits were the bomb, obviously. Right. But even in the first movie, the adults were very negligent of the children. There was a lot of trauma there. Obviously, poor Ben got his gut carved up. Like, it feels like a lot of the nostalgia lay in how they used to be as people. Yes. Rather than the landscape that they found themselves in. And I think that carries into the second movie, too. There's a nostalgia for who they were, but not necessarily where they were. Yeah. And I think we, as the millennial Gen Z kind of line, the Gen Zennials line, we relate to and through nostalgia as a way of coping with the things like how we have things right now. And it's an escape and it's a coping mechanism. And something that I loved about it, chapter one and two is it's that escape for us. And it's that very profound, sometimes melancholic longing that even if it hurts, it feels good, Mm, you know, and sweet. I think It Chapter 1, like you were saying, definitely triggers that feeling. But with It Chapter 2, adding that that other layer to it, it kind of takes the optimism that the first movie ends on, like this coming of age story and says, okay, now what happens? What happens afterwards? And what happens if they forget everything that they learned the first time around? And I thought that was super interesting. And I also thought 
they're longing for their past, but we're also longing for them longing for their past, which um, is something that I love to be hurt by. I <laughs> love to feel that pain. Right. Um, that sort of ties into something that I was looking at. So obviously the first thing I did was watch as many video essays as I possibly could. Right. And I want to particularly shout out one by Ryan Hollinger on YouTube talking about the morality of children in childhood. Two things actually that I'd like to talk about. One is that he brought up the concept that children don't die. And it chapter one really plays into that childhood morality of like, you live forever, you're sort of eternal when you're a kid. And I think that was really illustrated by the fact that all of these events happened within the confines of one summer. And no matter what, they always refer to it as that summer. In it too, they say what happened in that summer, there are blank pages in that summer. So it's all very contained, but at the same time, very eternal, sort of like perks of being a wallflower. Um, there was some quote about infinity and... Right. Yeah. And it goes against that completely by having kids die, even though none, the main kids, there's still the protagonist syndrome. The main kids don't die until they become adults. So they sort of maintain that immortality. But by having kids die, Stephen King has that like nice nostalgic feeling that a lot of works tend to have, but also the movie manages to shatter that at the same time that it's creating it. Yeah. Sort of setting up the landscape for it too, where everything goes to sh**. Right. And I think we kind of led into this. I think what makes it one and it two so great is maybe less plot and more being able to see yourself in the characters. And just, I think a lot of people have nostalgia for childhood and in having characters that you can relate to, you can kind of have nostalgia for your own childhood. Mm -hmm. He also was able to create like great anchors with each of his characters and with each of the losers. And so I think that talking about maybe a couple of them individually would be good. I think that'd be a really good idea. A nice case study of what they were able to do with these characters, especially in the modern movie interpretations, which admittedly I would be uh, remiss not to say I've only seen it 2017 and 2019. I have dabbled in the miniseries via YouTube compilations, but I've not had the pleasure of seeing Tim Curry doing his thing. Um, but to your point earlier, I think that everyone would have a nostalgia, maybe not for their childhood, but there's a certain level of nostalgia for what childhood could have been. Mm. Uh, and I think that that's also touched upon in these movies. There's a lot of things I'm sure they wished didn't happen Yeah, in certain ways, certain things they may have been living through and not dealing with at the time. Yeah, I definitely think that there's definitely a brutality to it. Like there is, it's their sudden and brutal recollection of like the feelings and the experiences and the places. And because of the nature of the thing, there's a focus on their trauma. But I think in the end, even like in the end of it, chapter two, after Eddie's death, there's, it always circles back to sort of that sense of togetherness and sense mm -hmm. of belonging and we're losers and we always will be mm -hmm. that kind of thing it's a story that really emphasizes i would say emotion over sort of the confines of reality because right. there's a whole dynamic in it one and it two but i think it's more illustrated in in chapter two when they're killing the clown that um belief in something and belief that something will work tends to be more powerful than I guess, the physical constraints of, of what would actually work. And from a filmmaking point of view, I do have issues with that. But also, I think it, it's an interesting concept. Believing something will work could arguably be more important than... Yeah, it's it's very childlike, honestly. Like, it's fantastic in the very, like, fantasy sense of the word. Is that a good transition into talking about it more as a structural film? Yeah, 
because I have some issues. Go on. I'm going to start by tearing into It Chapter 2 a little bit because honestly, I did try to do a film critique of It Chapter 1, but genuinely, I think it was a pretty great movie. I think it was a well-edited movie. I don't think the editing was stupendous. I have a three-point editing scale, and Julia's laughing at me because she knows that I talk about this scale all the time. If the editing is bad, you notice it. If the editing is good, you don't notice it. It disappears. And if the editing is stupendous, then you notice it again. So we're right in the middle. So we're right in the middle. It was good editing because I, I didn't really notice the editing. I think the story was mostly told, A, by the writing, B, by the directing, but mostly by the acting. Yes. Holy <laughs> I've never seen an ensemble cast do such a great job. And these were like, how old were they? Were they 12, 13? They were, yeah, they were young. It was like, I'm pretty sure that Ben was 11. The young baby. Yeah, young Ben was 11. And I think it ranged all the way up to maybe 15 at the oldest. But it was incredible. And I think that was the very first thing that you said to me after we finished was, I can't believe it was carried by those kids. And it was. I think it was really impressive that you said age range 11 to 15. I think that the characters were dealing with some really nuanced issues and the writing of those issues was pretty nuanced as well. And I think that the kids actually did a really great job interpreting that and bringing it to screen in a really subtle way. And I think partially that's because they were a group of insanely talented actors who will continue to have just like wonderful futures in film. Stan Finn Wolfhart. (laughs) Stan Finn Wolfhart (laughs) in this house. Um, but also I think that's partially because as adults and even young adults, even people in their early twenties, I think we have a tendency to forget what it was like to be 12, 13, 14, 15, and forget the depth to which we actually understood things happening around us. Like I think kids that age understand a lot more than we give them credit for. Yeah. I think it's really easy to dehumanize kids, especially as you get older and, They sort of, in some ways, feel like a different species, but they're people. They're just little. (laughs) (laughs) It's deep. (laughs) They're people, but they're little, and their perception of the world isn't any less uh, intense as ours is. (laughs) Kids are people. That's the hot (laughs) take on this podcast today. (laughs) Wow. Groundbreaking revelation. I'm speaking like I'm an alien. (laughs) Hello. Welcome to Earth. Welcome. You I are touched, Pennywise. I touched down and I was like, I'm ready to do a podcast. <laughs> um, but you were saying where you can't criticize it chapter one, you can criticize it chapter I two. Can. So I can. I'm sure. I'm, I can and I will. <laughs> I can and I will. I'm sure there are people who are far more qualified than me that could have critiques of it chapter one that... um. That are very valid and and very fine. But uh, when you take a lot of film classes, you get to a point where you just need to decide to enjoy things. (laughs) If there's something you like, you just need to like irrevocably like it. Just got to turn everything else off. Um, Or else you're just you're just going to explode. So I've decided to like it one and I will defend it until I die. So (laughs) but it too, I have some issues. Another this isn't a continuity error so much as a criticism of the sort of narrative structure The idea that Bill, after regaining his memories, would fall again for the Georgie and the sewer ploy. Yeah, that one was rough. And go on. Sorry. And furthermore, I don't think that it makes sense that his token would be a replica of the boat that Georgie had. The replica obviously came from it. The clown sort of conjured up Georgie and conjured up that replica. So how could something that the clown gave him 
end up being the token that he used to destroy him. I feel like that's an oversight considering this being is supposed to be some sort of omniscient fear beast. Yeah, and I think the explanation that I put forward, at least um, when we were watching it, the time when I was not trashed. Uh, we watched this twice in a week, which was a little bit... Both movies. Both movies, yes. Yeah. Um, which was a lot. Um, at best, emotionally taxing. At worst, offensive to the movie-going population. <laughs> and our Fandango Now account. Oh. <laughs> um, but what I brought up was, I think at that point, maybe it could be explained away with Pennywise kind of toying with them. Like, he knows that the ritual that Mike put forward isn't going to work. I have a lot of issues just with just with the whole defeat of Pennywise in general. So I don't know if I can defend that one yeah. uh, with as much uh, vigor. And I would like to uh, bring this to the forefront now because it's something we actually have talked about together before. And we would like to both mutually condemn the um, pretty tasteless and out of date use of uh, use of Native American narratives and structures and just the whole representation Yes, and the um, the drugging your friends. Oh, don't microdose your friends. <laughs> Do not. I put peyote in the water. <laughs> good, good. The podcast peyote water. <laughs> but yeah, we did want to take that opportunity to say that that particular aspect of the movie we both found to be in incredibly poor taste. And you know, it's um, it's a little racist. Yeah, and you know, we talk, we have talked about, and we're going to talk more about how the uh, remakes kind of elevate the movies out of the original text, and it creates something richer for it. And that was somewhere where it could have been elevated, and it just wasn't. It was. I feel like of all the changes that they made to the um, sort of the plot structure and the characters, I feel like that would have been one of the easier ones to update. Uh, yeah. To to you know. Be not like that. <laughs> to drag, you know, kicking and screaming into the 21st century. Yeah. Anyway. I just want to say that. And then uh, there's something else structurally. The defeat of Pennywise. I, this is all, I'm criticizing the narrative a lot. And I know I said I was going to criticize it from a film point of view. But honestly, the editing was just okay. It was fine. It was, it was much too long with far too little content in those <laughs> hours. I think it could have been tightened up a lot. And it would have made for a more entertaining piece. I also think maybe the time could have been allocated a little differently. A deeper dive into Richie's backstory would have been more illuminating and more rewarding for the end of the movie. And I think that we could have used a little less time on Bill. <laughs> that could also be a result of um, <laughs> James McAvoy's very milk toast performance. Yeah. Yeah, you said it. I mean, you said it. Um, I think he was given too much screen time. And I think that the screen time that he had was not utilized very yeah, well. Like something that really comes across in other adaptations of it is how much everybody else looks up to Bill and how much of a leader he is. And like Richie and Eddie hero worship him. Like he is just, he's big Bill. He's the coolest guy ever. And James McAvoy is not that. He doesn't have the gravitas to pull that off. And the movie suffered for it. I think it really did. I think especially the characterization, I think between young Bill and old Bill, I think was inconsistent in ways that could be explained away by the 27 years of not remembering what happened in Derry, but I feel like the core of who he was as a person really 
had shifted in certain ways that made it not, I wasn't invested in adult Bill because I felt like I was meeting him for the first time. Right. I didn't feel like I felt with the other characters that they were returning versions of people that I had already grown attached to. Right. Yeah. That's, that definitely put it into words. That's exactly what I was trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wait, I have something to mention. Um, So stuff that was left in subtext, I think, for this movie. Um, (laughs) This is a stupid joke. I'm just going to go out and say it. So Pennywise canonically reversed Richie's vasectomy. What? (laughs) What? I was waiting. I was holding on to this bomb to drop on you while we were recording. Wait, I'm sorry. Does that mean they canonically had to detail the fact that he got a vasectomy? Yes. That he got a vasectomy. <laughs> Why did he do this? That's such a dick move. That he has. That's like not even scary. That's just inconvenient. It's just rude. <laughs> That, you know, Richie's vasectomy is important subtext in this movie. So, like, you're watching it, you're watching it, and you don't know that he's quietly having his vasectomy reversed, but it's happening. (laughs) And I think that that's the subtle mastery of Bill Hader's performance, is that he knew. Yes. It's something that you can can see in his eyes. (laughs) If you look at Bill Hader anytime he's in the background of the scene... You can see his eyes unfocused. (laughs) That's the moment where his vasectomy was reversed. (laughs) This is stupid. You got... How many... James McAvoy could never. never. Why don't you talk about Eddie? (laughs) Great. Go for it. So I want to talk about Eddie, but I actually really want to give special attention to... It Chapter 2 and James Ranson's performance that I think is pretty popularly criticized. Not with any sort of malice, it's not criticized like no one hates it, but some of the choices that he made that other people really didn't like, I actually really enjoyed. Eddie, obviously, when he's a child, has something going on with his mom, like that is an abusive household. And I did a lot of research and a lot of the interpretations, and again, keeping in mind I've only seen the movies. I'm trying to open up here. Go on. Are you done? Yes, I'm done. You're a consummate professional. (laughs) Thank you. A lot of the research uh, diagnoses Eddie with Munchausen by proxy, which is it's a mental illness on the part of the parent where they either actually physically make their child sick or they make their child believe that they're having symptoms of illnesses. But I definitely see in the actor's interpretations of Eddie... Um, symptoms of anxiety, hypochondriasis, obsessive compulsive disorder, which I'm very familiar with. I can actually speak on that one. But I think that it was actually a really interesting performance for James Ranson to kind of carry that with him because I feel like there's sort of this stigma around, I guess, disorders or any like non-neurotypical performances in film that it's more acceptable for a child to display symptoms of anxiety or being unsure But James Ranson really carried that into the second movie to the point where he froze up when Richie was being eaten by the spider. And you could constantly hear him in the background of the scene saying, I don't like this. I want to go home. I want to go home. I don't like this. I wish I stayed home. 
And then again, when they're in the sewers and Beverly goes under the water and he's saying, guys, guys, I don't want to walk out of here alone. It's really easy to play that off as a joke. And it's really easy to think that it was meant to be comical, but I actually think it was an interesting decision, especially considering he forgot 27 years of his life. He had no chance to really grow from that trauma or break away from his mother. Mm. He forgot all the progress he made in the first movie. And speaking as someone with chronic OCD and anxiety, that's not something that goes away when you're an adult. Um, The freezing up, the physically not being able to move is not something that's really talked about. And it's really kind of pushed aside for people that sort of experience that. And I think if they left that out of Eddie's character, I think it would have been a disservice to how Jack Dylan Grazer played him in the first movie to sort of throw that all away. So I want to talk about two things about Eddie in particular, and that is the fence post that kills monsters and also his experience um, when he was finding his token. So when Beverly hands him the fence post and says, this kills monsters, he asks, does it really? And she says, if you believe it does. And I understand that this is supposed to tie into the theme of how belief is more important than sort of actuality in this film. But I sort of liked the way that it rounded out his character arc with sort of his anxiety and his own personal issues. First of all, I think that when he makes the decision to go after it, despite his anxieties about it, I think it parallels nicely with his career as a risk analyst. Clearly weighing the pros and cons, saving his friends, specifically saving Richie, in terms of risk-reward analysis, it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. That's love, bitch. Um, and I thought a lot about whether I liked the idea that he died from it. I thought initially I hated it. I hated that he died from it. I hated that the message was that no matter what, taking risks will lead to the worst case scenario. That taking risks is terrible and bad. I thought that this sort of fed into his story that he was right not to take risks his whole life because of these terrible consequences. But I sort of ruminated on it I kind of like it now because I think it less than showing that taking risk isn't worth it, showing that even if a worst case scenario is the only outcome, some risks are worth taking regardless. Hmm. And then moving on to the larger metaphorical resonance, I thought it was cool that he got to be the one to sort of weaken it and take that chance. I thought it dovetailed nicely with the narrative of having anxiety because when you have these disorders... Just every single day and every single thing that you do can feel like throwing a magical fence post at an evil monster, like something as simple as driving down the street or as simple as walking through gray water in the first movie can feel like throwing the fence post. And I feel like that's so resonant for so many people watching. I feel like the people who don't laugh off Eddie's freezing up in the second movie are the people who really need to see it and Mm -hmm. see him have that hero moment at the end. So that they know everything they do in their day to day. That's not necessarily, you know, murdering an alien from space. I think it's just a very rewarding end to his story, even though I don't think he necessarily needed to die. Yeah. Like we were saying before, uh, Eddie as a character in his many iterations has this nebulous anxiety, trauma. Even Dennis Christopher, who played Eddie in the miniseries, touches on something like sexual trauma. Um, And like you said, I think Eddie getting to have that hero moment, even if it does end up in tragedy, like everybody screamed in the theater for the first time when he was like, beep, beep, and threw it into the, uh, into its maw. And And it's the nebulous nature, I think, of the type of trauma that he has. I think it's different in everyone's interpretation. Right. But I think it makes him a nice stand-in for 
people who need to see that in an adult character. That's exactly. my primary takeaway is um, the freeze ups, the not being able to do things, the feeling fear in a very visceral childlike way as an adult. It's not something that ever goes away. Adults are scared all the time. Yeah. And I think it's almost cathartic to see an adult character especially one he's like a good looking guy he's like a normal 40 something year old like he's got some pretty bad tattoos got some pretty bad tattoos i'm I've, sorry james <laughs> but seeing that performance that vulnerability i think is important absolutely and i think i just have a lot of feelings about the fence post i feel like it's very metaphorical for overcoming everything and dovetailing nicely with that is when he says i almost killed it the leper uh, when he's dying, I recognize it's supposed to sort of tip them off to how to make Pennywise feel small so that they can kill him. But I think that that was also sort of metaphorical. Uh, sue me for looking deeper. But the the idea that he almost overcame what had been holding him back his whole life, he, he choked the vision that was taunting him. He threw the fence post. He said he thought he almost killed it. And it, there's a an element of tragedy that he never quite made it there. But I think more of his narrative was summed up in taking the risk to actually try to do it rather than the actual outcome. Right. And it's actually, it's interesting that he wasn't always a risk analyst. So I think this was like, this was another one of those adding another layer and making it deeper and more interesting in the new, the new adaptation. Yeah. If we could segue, <laughs> you've talked about your emotional support boy. <laughs> Let's go feet first. Yeah, um, I love it. I've got a quote. Hit me. So this is Bill Hader talking about Richie. Oh, I know this interview. What Bill Hader says is, from the point of comedians that I know and my own things of hiding things through laughter, Andy and I would talk about that a little bit. You make jokes and sometimes your comedy is a nice way of putting up a boundary between you and other people, but also a boundary within yourself of having to experience any sort of emotion or desire and things like that. And I think that's something Richie does, where this truth bomb thing is actually a mask for someone who I think is an idealist and a romantic. So Bill Hader Egot? Bill Hader Egot. <laughs> so in the book, so Richie's initial, just like the psychological and existential landscape that they kind of set him up uh, with. Before or after the vasectomy? This is before. <laughs> We're going, we're going back to childhood here. Okay. <laughs> so is that his identity just as a person is ambiguous and it's uncomfortable for him to think about. So he has these voices, which he just has his characters that he puts on. Just this feeling, especially as a kid where you don't know who you are and you think that authenticity is only going to ever lead to you being alone or this is the 20th century for Richie. So, you know dying um in a small town so it just felt really natural to me like there's really this thread that can be traced from young richie cracking jokes about beaver trapping mm -hmm. and about can only virgins see this shit um and eddie's mom to adult richie standing on a stage in front of a bunch of people telling jokes that somebody else wrote about a girlfriend that doesn't exist it didn't feel like a jump at all. It felt like something that made a lot of sense. And going back to the first movie, he's the only loser that doesn't get his pre-Nebolt solo scare. He doesn't get his one-on-one -on -one time with Pennywise. We've been watching way too much of The Bachelor. Pilot Pete, get your act together. Or Pennywise is going to take over. 
Sarah Pennywise is going to be the next Bachelor. Honestly, there's an audience. There's people there. I've seen the fan fiction. Dear Megan, we all float here, <laughs> up and away to love. <laughs> the hot air balloon date. Anyway, so when he does get there, when he gets his solo time with Pennywise, it, it, Pennywise, uh, taking the form of Eddie to lure him into the room, it's not necessarily the clowns that seem to have the biggest effect on him. What really does get to Richie is seeing himself on the poster and seeing himself in the coffin. And so I think that what we can take from that there is Richie's afraid of himself Richie's fear has always been tied to his identity. And like, for him, the mere act of himself starts feeling like a burden. Uh, Like it starts to feel scary. When I first saw it, I sort of interpreted it as sort of dying in the act of how everyone else sees him. Like, I know he didn't fully accept himself, maybe didn't even fully realize some things about himself. But I think there's always that fear of dying without being known. Hmm. Uh, so even if you don't even really want to know yourself, there's still like sort of this human fear of dying that alone. Even if you have friends around you dying without really being seen, even if you're afraid to be seen. I think that makes a lot of sense. And there's definitely an element there of Richie's fear going a little bit further. And so if nothing else, at the end, he gets that soft little be proud moment of reclamation and of solace, like when he's recarving his and Eddie's initials into the kissing bridge. And I think that's something like, like, that's wonderful. So I think that's kind of a good lead in. Uh, We were talking about ways that the movie was elevated and something that was on everybody's mind. Something that we should talk about is queerness in it. And so I think several recent blockbusters, I'm thinking like Avengers Endgame, I'm thinking Star Wars, um, have made some like really truly dismal attempts at representation of same-sex romance. We're looking at you specifically, Joe Russo, unnamed man in the support group Avengers. (laughs) (laughs) But I think where mainstream media is becoming more and more comfortable with queer representation, only if it's subtextual or if it's off screen or if it's four seconds long or if it's something that you can confirm after you finished your book series without making any reference to it in the original text. Oh, who are you talking about? I, I have no idea who you could no, be talking I'm just, about. I'm just kind of spitball. That's a really interesting hypothetical. Right. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just spit on you. That's okay. It's the nature of the beast. <laughs> podcast not you um richie surviving in itself is kind of revolutionary especially he's like the very first final gay like capital f capital g um in any blockbuster horror movie ever and filmmakers are continuing to hem and haw and they're expecting kind of credit for representation without any of like the risks it's not we're not in a brave new era it's queer baiting and it's still shameful and i'm not saying that it chapter two is a perfect movie in any way (laughs) can i put that down now um and I'll, i'll get into some of the issues that i had with it later but you have to admit that it's different 
it's different than what we've seen from other blockbusters. And Richie's queerness is openly and frequently acknowledged in the film. It's not subtle. It's not subtext. It's not a wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of thing. It's there. And, you know, I'm, I'm loath to give Stephen King any credit, um, especially when talking about uh, original text. But the new movies are kind of, they're a restoration and it's kind of taking the past context and restaging it. And considering how willing he was to kind of go along with the vision that Andy Muschietti and Barbara Muschietti uh, had for Richie and Eddie, he was clearly also able to see this in his own characters. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And so I'm pulling out the vocab here. Get it. <laughs> Get it. Um, I took a few film glasses as well. <laughs> but... What I think these movies are is that they're a palimpsest, which is something that's been reused or altered, but still bears traces of the original form. So it's a palimpsest with the text and the miniseries uh, in the margins of it, kind of. And I think that it's richer for it because of a few decades of social progress and because of the literary and like philosophical analysis that said, you know... I'm gay and I relate to Eddie's feelings of shame or I relate to Richie and his self-loathing and identity issues. And I think in putting that in the movie, it's acknowledging that it's so it's an active way of consuming something like it's intellectual engagement on the part of the audience in that they've read themselves into the text. And because of that, like Gary Doberman and Andy Muschietti, were able to add those interpretations to the text and the creators and the fans were able to kind of create something together. Something we larger than the original. Exactly. Some like of its parts. It, it weaves the original intentions of the author and like his original story with the profound effect that it had on people. Like there's very little that I enjoy in a vacuum. I love to engage in things when like, I couldn't just watch it chapter one sitting by myself in a room alone and then never think about it again. I love the community that comes when people enjoy something together. And I think the movies were almost a product of that. So mostly what I want to talk about is the decision to include the murder of Adrian Mellon. And that's a scene that the miniseries left out and I'll get into this, but I understand why they made that choice. And I think now thinking about it a little bit, I understand the choice to keep it in, but I think that things could have been done to make it better. So the murder of Adrian Mellon is based on the murder of a real gay man. And it was intended to be sort of the inciting incident, intended to be like a tragedy of such magnitude that it brings the losers back to Derry. And his death is really supposed to touch on the idea that fear and prejudice and bigotry are very much villains in the world of it. Like, it's something that Pennywise embodies and something that the movie didn't touch on, which I think if they wanted to pull this scene off successfully, they could have, um, was in the book, Adrian Mellon's death is partly due to Pennywise fanning the hatred in the town. And I think that in not including that, they didn't really make it clear what they were doing. Yeah, exactly. Um, it wasn't handled with a lot of tact. Right. 
I understand that they wanted to show the brutality of it for what it was by not sugarcoating the fact that it was a hate crime, like a really heinous hate crime, but I think that it lacked the context. Right. And I think that it lacked some of the subtlety and respect in the way they handled actually shooting the scene Mm -hmm. for it to really be pulled off in a way that was meaningful rather than shocking. Right. Yes. I think the way that it came across was definitely shock value. And like, there were ways to carry that scene without... I don't know. The violence was just so explicit. And then Adrian gets brought up maybe once or twice by Mike, but it, mm-hmm. he, his death was supposed to be more explicitly a motivation for everybody co- to come back. And like in the book, he gets a whole chapter to himself and none of that's present. I agree. And I want to cut any horror movie buffs off at the pass here before they argue that horror as a genre is intrinsically about very graphic gore and very graphic violence and comparing it to some of the other violence in the film. The other violence was studio violence. It was film violence. This is violence that happens. And so it needs to be handled differently and more respectfully than violence of someone getting their arm bit off by a spider head. It's, It's different and you know it. And so on that note, I think we also wanted to move into a discussion of Beverly as a character and her various interpretations throughout the years. Um, And so before we get into that section, I want to give uh, a shout out. It, the most surprising scene in the movie, has nothing to do with clowns uh, by Aja Romano or Asia Romano. um, And that's on Vox.com. But I have a quote. Hit me. Uh, And this is just from Sophia Lillis talking about Beverly and specifically Beverly in the first movie. And she says, I learned about her and how strong she is and how desperate she is. I could see that she had a bad childhood. And because of that, she kind of locks everyone out. The first time I auditioned, it was with a different director. And back then she was not really as tomboyish as Andy suggested. It was almost like she had given up or was giving in to her father. Working with Andy, we developed her as rebelling against her father. Andy is the hands-on type. Each of us kids had a meeting with him, and I remember sitting down with him, and he said, so what do you think of Beverly, and what do you want to do with this movie? It was, how do you want to direct it, almost. And I just think that rules. Yeah, Andy Machete giving power to the actors, especially agency to kids. Yeah. That's rad as hell. Yes. Shout out, Andy. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for this. (laughs) But, you know, with chapter one, Beverly, I think her characterization is far from perfect, just like everything in this movie is. But she's unquestionably the best Beverly ever. Like, the best Beverly that has ever been interpreted in the It canon. I totally agree. I think it's phenomenal what she was able to do with that narrative. It's such an intense stomach turning narrative. I recognize all the kids to a degree have some trauma that they would have had to deal with regardless of whether Pennywise showed up to the town. And the idea that almost defeating Pennywise and coming up against that horror helped her sort of defeat her father also. It was a really cool double team aspect to the story. Yeah. And You know, this is something that the article is going to dive into. Uh, It is not a feminist film. Oh, no. Um, (laughs) I read, I'm not sure if it was this article or if it was another one somewhere in the ether that I read, but they said because it's a movie fundamentally about boys transition to men like it is about it's not about childhood so much as it is about boyhood boyhood. And they sort of skewed that a little bit to allow Beverly her space to explore um, in the first movie, but I think there is there is contextualization that puts her against 
their narrative. Right, right. And I think that that's something that I loved about the first movie is that Beverly, Beverly really does carve out this space to be a tomboy and be an adventurer. And she has both internal and external motivations, just like the rest of the cast. And it still keeps in mind how much her trauma shapes her as a character. So we wanted to talk about a little bit about the blood. Oh, yeah. Stephen King found out <laughs> about periods and it blew his mind. I think fundamentally at the core of, of it as a story is Stephen King's misunderstanding of how both periods and vasectomies work. <laughs> Stephen King's lack of sexual education as a child. This is why we need better sex ed in America. It's true. Otherwise you get The Shining. <laughs> I'm just thinking about the bloody door. Protect yourself against The Shining. Wear a condom. <laughs> so. Are you testing positive for The Shining? God. <laughs> so I think what uh, we're alluding to here very delicately is that the blood in the bathroom kind of, it's, it's a metaphor for Beverly's um, menstruation, menstruation, uh, <laughs> but also her anxieties about growing up. And I think that that scene gets a little bit more attention in this adaptation. Uh, and I think something that the article touches on is how pertinent that is right yeah. now. And I think they also touched upon... Um, how unglamorous the scene was it wasn't right. a fun montage it wasn't um anything that was made light of mm -hmm. uh, it was just shot after shot of people scrubbing just gunky wet gross blood it was a gross scene it wasn't brushed over yeah it was grueling work but it's a it solidifies their relationship and like for beverly the closest relationship she has is also the worst one that she has and that's such an incredibly intense thing for she's a teenager yeah and it just brought this level to beverly as a character that i've never seen before in all of the other adaptations yeah that requires a real like self-possession that I don't think I had when I was 13, 14, 15. Yeah, that I think even a lot of adult actors don't have, or at least it doesn't come across. Um, yeah, I think that that was the casting director for this movie. I mean, I hope that they got a huge bonus. <laughs> um, maybe not for It 2, uh, but a bonus for It 1, because I think the casting was really spot on. So I think we have exhausted everything we wanted to say about It Chapter 1 and Chapter 2. Thank you so much for listening. We will be dropping new episodes twice a month, hopefully on Sundays, most likely on whatever days I finish editing them. I'm sorry, it's just how I am. Our theme song is Touch Tone Telephone by Lemon Demon. If you don't know who they are, you've been living under a rock, but we will link their social channels and music channels down below in the link area that I assume exists. Julia, would you like to take us out on the HTOTD, the hot take of the day? Yes, my hot take of the day is that Pennywise x Babadook is not a valid ship. The Babadook is a Chad. Incisive. All right. Bye-bye. Right all along, better to be laughed at than 